And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I can remember uh, the first time I read Pope John Paul II quoting uh, from the Second Vatican Council, and it was the passage which is, the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. Now, I had already returned to the Catholic Church at that time, and I you know, I affirmed the Church's teaching on the, uh, the nature of the Eucharist. But when he put it that way, the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith, I said, wow, that's, that, you don't say, I thought, isn't Jesus the source and summit of our faith? Right. <laughs> so, so this led me to a much more dynamic and appreciative understanding of the Eucharist. Um, but I remember my first impression saying, I know he must be right, but that sounds awfully big. With me is Marcus Peter, host of Unveiling the Covenants, which airs Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 9.30 on the Ave Maria radio uh, stations. And um, I saw a piece that you wrote for Homiletic and Pastoral Review uh, called The Eucharistic Christology of Pope Benedict XVI, and I really liked it. And I thought, well, he's just down the street. Let me call him and see if he can come in and join us uh, on this. Benedict has an important play, role to play in your life. Mm-hmm. He was the chief influence in your coming into the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I think you're, you're actually, is your confirmation name Benedict? Or? Yeah, actually, yeah, yes. I think so. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, let's talk a little bit about this. You lead off the piece by quoting Benedict, Christ is truly present among us in the Eucharist. His presence is not static. It is a dynamic presence that grasps us to make us his own, to make us assimilate him. Christ draws us to himself. He makes us come out of ourselves to make us all one with him. He is the one same Christ who is present in the Eucharistic bread of every place on earth. And I just, when I hear that, I say to myself, you know, we aren't just, we talk about receiving the Eucharist. But we have to remember that in a real way, Christ is receiving us mm-hmm. in that in the Eucharistic action here. Right. So um, let's go over the way you approach it uh, in the piece. You talk about the New Covenant to begin with right. and the significance of the New Covenant. Uh, again, St. Paul passing along the tradition, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Well, I mean, this is, this is basic uh, Catholic teaching. Mm-hmm. How does Benedict take us deeper? into this idea of the real presence that he is with us. This is my body. Um, if I were to begin, just to address especially that, right, I love that you say this is basic Catholic teaching. Yeah. But you as well as I came into the church back as reverts with fresh eyes. Yeah. And and I think we often take for granted just how just how basic of a teaching this is. 
And, and that's what Ratzinger really did for me. For yeah. some reason, this man was faithful to the church from, from his mother's womb, and yet he never wavered in being able to see with fresh eyes the profundity of what was before him. Yeah. So when he took a look at the Eucharist in, in the Greek, so he, his, his biblical theology, he just makes scripture rise and shine and sing and soar to new heights like, like no one I've ever known since mm. or, or, or no one I know still. Yeah. And when he views the Eucharist, he cannot imagine a Christ without a liturgy and a liturgy without a Eucharist. So in, in the Greek, you have, he cannot see a Christos without a Liturgos and a Liturgos without first a Eucharistia. Very good. And then in, in the Hebrew, he does the same thing in the Old Testament that he cannot see a Mashiach, a Messiah, without first a Kahal, this assembly, the covenant assembly of the people, which is grounded in the Toda, which is the Hebrew word for Thanksgiving. Right. Right. And so the, the Hebrew Toda, which formed the heart of the Templic worship of the Davidic covenant, that, that kind of started its roots with the Mosaic covenant, mm-hmm. Benedict tra- traces it all the way back there. Yeah. So when he draws us to, say, Exodus 24, which, you know, be, behold the blood of the covenant and the sprinkling of the blood. Now, for those of you who've never read th- that passage, th- this is going to sound alarming, right? But Moses does something truly gruesome. And I praise God that Jesus died on the cross, because if not, our priest would have to do exactly this. <laughs> <laughs> he takes he takes the oxen, he sacrifices it, but instead of letting the blood just run over the altar, he collects it in bowls. Mm-hmm. And then and he goes over to the people and he sprinkles this blood upon them. Yes. And then he pours that blood upon the altar, effectively drawing this bloodline. See, I think part of the problem is we're so removed from the notion of covenant identity that Benedict kind of takes for granted that we know. Yeah, very, very good. I mean, when you talk about covenant identity, you're talking about really kinship, yeah, like family, right? Uh, and it starts out as a blood family, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So because today, when we think about family, especially the word adoption, we think you know monumental paperwork. Uh, that's right. Legalistic, right? Uh, understanding. Yeah. But but for the Jewish heritage, the notion of covenant was no, no, no. The, as soon as you enter into this covenant, we are blood family. We are blood kin. Yeah. You are no different than my biological right. children. Right. And if I break this covenant. And let what has happened to the sacrificed animal happen to me. In fact, uh, in Near Eastern history, I, I did this research for my dissertation, Near Eastern history, when a person were to break a covenant vow that he's made, his own biological family will put him to death mm. for fear of the shame that that would incur in the community. Wow. So, again, we've, we've taken that for granted, but Benedict draws us right back to the fact that Paul, you know, so Paul uses this word, right? This is the New Testament in my blood. We call the Bible the Old and the New Testament. Well, what is Latin testamentum but anything anything but the, the, the biblical word covenant, the Hebrew berit, the Greek diatheke? So, in essence, the entire Bible is the Old and the New Covenant. Covenant. That's right. So when Paul says, this is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood, you know, Scott Hahn does this thing, right? The, the new covenant was a sacrament and not a document according to the document. And, and Paul's reiterated that. That's right. Now, Al, as I say this, I'm very ashamed and you're going to laugh at me. When I was a Pentecostal, we read from this passage when we did our, our communion mm-hmm. uh, services, which incidentally we did once a month. And in hindsight, do this in memory of me. Gosh, we remembered him very little if we only did it <laughs> once a month. So my pastor would read from this text, you know, the great Pauline Eucharistic prayer, mm-hmm. and he'd try to make it as emotional as possible. 
to try to evoke some kind of significance in the event. But we always stop short of realizing that, no, the anamnesis, so Benedict uh, refers to that, the anamnesis, the commemoratio Christi, the, the remembrance of Christ, is more than just, oh, let's fondly remember yeah, him. Yeah. No, no, no. It is interesting, isn't it, though, that they they try to breathe into it some reverence. There's, yeah. there's some baptismal instinct that recognizes there's something more there yep. than just bread and wine. But yep. they don't really want to say what it is. They're afraid because they don't want to sound Catholic. Exactly. It's really anti-Catholic, absurd anti-Catholic bias that, that triggers them not being willing to take that step forward. There's this funny story. There was once I attended this communion service in the youth group, and we had broken up these shortbread cookies as, as the communion. We didn't have communion wafers, so we broke, broke up shortbread cookies. Now, mind you, I realize in hindsight how sacrilegious this <laughs> sure, be, right? Sure. So, so please don't think I'm saying, therefore, you ought to do this. And, and one of our, our, our members was hungry, so while waiting for everyone else, he started snacking on the shortbread. And then someone else came on and said, you're eating the communion! Yes. <laughs> That's it. What, oh, oh, what, what, what is that? Uh, why do we have these limitations? It's no longer mere bread. Right! It's no longer mere shortbread that you can <laughs> have as a dessert. Right! There's something going on there, even though the theology hasn't made room for it. Right, right. I, I think I, I told this story recently. Sally and I were doing, conducting a Bible study in married housing at Michigan State University. Had about a dozen people there. All of us, uh, well, many of us had uh, Christian backgrounds, and about half of us had liturgical or sacramental backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And I can, re- and other ones, other ones had Pentecostal or Baptist type kind of low church approaches. And I just, for some reason or other, I asked, you know, uh, when you have. Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, I'm not sure what word we use, didn't use Eucharist. So when you when you receive, are you just getting, is that just bread and wine? Or do you, do you think there's something else going on there? I think to almost everyone right. said, oh no, no, there's something special going on there. And I thought, that's strange, because... For most of the people there, that isn't what their theology would dictate. Right. But they have, again, I I call baptismal instincts, uh, that they know something's happening here, that they need to be reverent, they need to receive soberly, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and examination of conscience, of right. course, which we, is St. Paul's direct. Yeah, Paul is very, yeah. very... And, and again, if it was just a symbol, if it didn't matter, why on earth does Paul say discern the body before eating yeah. it? Yeah. It, yeah. It, if, if it really didn't matter, right, it should be no more than me... Getting buttered toast, yeah, yeah. But, but but it really does matter. Yes. So when you when you go back to this notion of um, the, you can't have a Christ who at, at once is Christ without a liturgy, right? Well, what does the liturgy do? It's so easy for normalistic Christians to think that we worship because God needs something for us. But the truth is, God is absolutely transcendent. The liturgy is the work of the people, but it's for us. Mm-hmm. And it's, so what is it for? Well, in spirit of the liturgy, Ratzinger is very clear. It is for us to be elevated from servility into participation in a, into our eventual divine life that we will inherit from God, not through our own merits, yeah. but, but through the gift that God endows upon us. Right. I remember encountering this notion, and, and it hit me like a zinger, or a Ratzinger, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I really shouldn't make that's that joke. A, that's a terrible pun. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 here here's this man. He's, he's kind of saying this in a kind of matter of fact attitude. 
and 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 it, it it gripped me that in the liturgy I am actively being metaphysically elevated. I just don't see it. Right. I mean, let's face it, Father's right. homilies can be dull and boring, yeah. and yeah. and the reader's voice can drone on, and the choir can get overwhelming. But and yet, despite all of our human limitations, nothing changes the metaphysical reality of of the the, the sacrament that I'm receiving. Right. This is a Eucharist that I'm not just receiving for my own sustenance. Through it, Christ is elevating me into him yeah and this is this is what is so important to keep in mind is that it is a dynamic action not just from our side of it yep but from his side of it yep yeah he's reaching out he's elevating us marcus hold there we'll take a break come, come back and continue the conversation my guest uh, marcus peter we're talking about the eucharistic christology of pope benedict the 16th and again entering into the new covenant Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Marcus Peter. We are talking about the Eucharistic Christology of Pope Benedict. It's a, a really a piece that he wrote for a homiletic and pastoral review. It's a very good, very good um, and dynamic presentation uh, of the Eucharist. And you started out by saying uh, Pope Benedict, Joseph Ratzinger, never re- never had a time in which Jesus was disconnected from the liturgy, from the Eucharist. And in fact, he saw it as contiguous with the Old Testament, where you have, again, you have the the thanksgiving, you have uh, the covenant, you have the shedding of blood. And so for him, he sees the new covenant as kind of taking up the old covenant and elevating it. At a more universal level, and um, I, and I think he also has this, and this is what gets me excited um, to remember that when what's going on when we receive uh, Christ in the Eucharist is is not just us kind of extending ourselves, hoping that we'll get a deeper understanding, but he's actually at work reaching out to us. Yep. And elevating us at that time, there's a metaphysical truth happening there that I I don't think we always keep in mind, and it happens uh, even as as we receive faithfully, even if our even if our emotions aren't tracking. Yep. You know, I mean, it's it's actually going on in an objective but metaphysical way. Yep. You know, um, and and I'd like to uh, start exactly there, Al. I remember as a Pentecostal. I, I was told I was a very uh, gifted or anointed uh, worship leader and and, and preacher, and, and which said, I can imagine was true. <laughs> you, you're very kind. You're very kind. I, I never quite understood what they meant. And then I, I, someone told me, you know, whenever you lead worship or whenever you preach, God shows up. They, they said that, right? And because I came from such an empiricist background, I, I had to figure out what God shows up meant. meant of course, and. I, I guess they meant there was a certain heaviness in the air, which I praise the Lord for, because when the Holy Spirit moves, there's, there's a certain sense, mm-hmm. and, and the human person is not completely alien to that sense. I right. completely acknowledge that, right? But 
I also came to realize that a big part of of what was going on was a kind of emotional evocation yeah. to yeah. to the response of God's work and that's movement, right. and and you know in the Pentecostal movement especially that's equated to the power and working of God. And if it's not there, then He's not there, right? Yeah. So yeah. we had services where I, I say this with respect. We had some pastors who were just not as dynamic preachers as the others. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And I came to realize that the lifespan of a church was basically the lifespan of its most charismatic pastor, and. <laughs> You know, like if he dies and if we don't replace that, that, that role soon, you know, the church is going to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but then, you know, people say, you know, I didn't feel like God showed up today. And again, you know, that would get me to think. And then when I, when I came to the Catholic Church, I came to realize something. Uh, not only do I not have to invent new spins on Scripture, which I'm very grateful for. I, I, I don't have to come up with new things. The church has given us everything. But the second thing is this. Al, I, I've got a 21-month-old and an eight, eight, a 21-month-old boy whom I love dearly and, and my 8-month-old girl whom I love dearly who need me during Mass. I find myself unable to sit down and really zoom in to the mysteries yeah. uh, and, and the eschatological reality of the right. liturgy that's right. happening before me. That's I mean, right. forget Mr. God. Gee, I'm just trying to stomach the misery, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, sorry, but I, you know me. I love wordplay yeah. and puns. <laughs> yeah. And, and and so I'm 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 realizing more and more that no, my faithfully living out my fatherhood is still going to be a channel of grace because God's going to show up That's whether right. I feel it or not. In fact, I dare say, especially when I don't feel it, yeah. God's being that faithful. So Ratzinger goes on to say that no, you have to understand that Christ shows up, and 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 all three dimensions of time, past, present, and future, are taken up into this one moment. Yes, let me just quote quote him. Oh here. yeah, please uh, yeah. On this, uh, An encounter with Christ always requires the three dimensions of time and a stepping beyond time into that which is its origin and its future. When we set out to find the true Jesus, we must be prepared for this broad span. We will have to listen to the sources which testify to that beginning and therefore correct our present age when it loses its ways in its own ideals. But... um, what I was thinking of is you, in, when we encounter Christ in the Eucharist, we are encountering his messianic uh, status, mm-hmm. uh, but we're also seeing Good Friday and Easter uh, together. So yep. he's, he's in, in the same time walking towards the cross and emerging from the grave. Yep. Yeah. At the same time, yeah. I'm a Doctor Who fan. I, you know, the British Hemisphere. Uh, the, sorry, the British Commonwealth. Uh, you know, we're pretty wrapped up in Doctor Who. I no longer watch it now. But yeah. uh, growing up, there was this phrase called "wibbly wobbly, timey wimey" stuff. You know, it, it, it was a prominent uh, phrase in the show. I mean, I'm telling you, ever since I became Catholic, I realized there's nothing more wibbly wobbly, timey wimey than the Eucharist. Right. We just don't think about it. At the point of that elevation, if we were to stop and to be able to see with the eyes of the angels, we are at once in the present, because that's actually happening, being brought to 2,000 years ago at Calvary, but not just at Calvary, because Jesus began his sacrifice in the upper room, and both mysteries are interconnected. So at once, we are being transported to these two past events, while having Jesus, as the book of Hebrews chapter 11 says, Jesus is ministering in the eternal sanctuary, offering himself. Yeah. 
Yeah. So there is this past reality being made present while we have a foretaste of our eternal future. Mm. And that's why that's what Benedict says. We have to listen to sources which testify to that beginning because it corrects our present age. Jared Stout wrote that book, How the Eucharist Can Save Civilization. Mm-hmm. It really should have been named How the Eucharist Made Civilization. Yeah. The Eucharist yeah. forms the entire cult of human existence and therefore human culture. Our art, our understanding of truth, our philosophy, and therefore our theology, our sciences, in one way, shape, or form, relates back to the fact that God became man and gave us his body, blood, soul, and divinity as a tangible, continued anamnesis, reality, a remembrance of his presence. And not only does he never leave us, you know when Christ says, I will be with you always until the end of the age, Mm -hmm. the church fathers unanimously say, oh yeah, and this is no more than the Eucharist. Yeah, I got yeah. to tell you, El, when I was reading all of these things coming into the church, the church fathers in Ratzinger, it kind of scared me how matter of fact they were about all this. Because as a Protestant, you don't know these things. You know, like, I am with you always until yeah. the end of the age. And, and oh, yeah, you know, it's Eucharistic. Well, they don't always argue to demonstrate because it's presupposed. Right. Yeah, that's, that's it's shocking. That Reading the Apostolic Fathers, I can remember the first time saying to myself, They're, they did. They assume things that uh, I'm not convinced of. Right. And so who's right? Who's wrong here? Right. They're closer to the apostles than I am. So I'm assuming that they're sharing the presuppositions of the apostles. You know, Irenaeus likes that phrase, we all know that, or we know that. I used to get mad when I read that in his letters. I'm like, no, I don't know. (laughs) Don't assume I know. Right, right. So we now, children of this new covenant, we receive this sprinkling of the blood except that it's the blood of the Lamb that we have received upon us at baptism, continue to be sprinkled through the sacramental of water that actually represents the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for all of us. And again, once again, thank God that Father doesn't have to sprinkle actual animal blood on us. But a little more than that, by virtue of this continued renewal of the covenant bond, the Eucharist of Christ elevates us into true participation in the liturgy that we can become partakers of his Christhood. I mean, we, I mean, Benedict goes on to touch on this. We are co-Christs, if you will. In this sense, in a small way, we are co-redeemers. We have, in, in dying with Christ, we, we become like Christ. Our sufferings, as Paul says, makes up what's lacking in the body of Christ. I mean, Christ lacks nothing. But he does this for our sake, not for his. He does it so that we can come to participate in his own saving work and his own redemptive work. So your work, El, of working here in Ave Maria Radio, the sacrifices you make for the church and for your family, not only purifies you, it purifies purifies your bride, it purifies your church, yeah. it purifies your children, and it purifies the church. And, and my work of being faithful to this work, and I'm, I'm faithful to my bride, I'm faithful to my children, and therefore, therefore, I hope to be purifying the church. Because Christ's sacrifice is us crucified with him. All of humanity hangs upon that cross with Christ. And again, Benedict takes that for granted. It's outstanding how profound he is about this. It, yes, and I think we have to remember, too, in Christ, um, we see who we are meant to be, and I, and I think sometimes we don't realize that. That that's there, this is that dynamic action, this transformation that's occurring in our lives. Yep. He's begun a good work in us, yep. and uh, as long as we continue to cooperate, He's going to finish it. Yep. And that means that we will, in fact be purged of disordered self-love. It means that we will, uh, again, be 
properly refract who Jesus is to the world around us. And, you know, none of us like to get ahead of our sanctification here, uh, but we really should be living with the joyful expectation that we will be conformed to Christ. Yep. And, uh, and that should be something we look forward to and actually are anticipating and hopefully you know, we have developed uh, in that direction uh, more uh, as we've physically aged, mm-hmm. you know? And and that's the language of assimilation, right? Yeah. That, that every single day, as Romans 8 tells us, we are being conformed into the person of Christ. My reception of the Eucharist doesn't, it, it's not like other food. Benedict makes that point. It's not like other food. Other food comes into me, my body breaks it right. down, I right. assimilate the nutrients, with the Eucharist, I consume of Christ, but Christ is consuming me. That's right. I am, I'm actually assimilated into the divine essence for that minute, for that moment. And as I continue to, that's why daily mass goers will say, the day I don't go to daily mass, I feel I, it. I, yeah, yeah. No. And, and, and that's what we're called to be, you know, daily conformed into the image of Christ. And the older I get, I hope that people look at me and go, there goes another Christ. Yeah. Yeah, and that's not, again, one isn't boasting of this because we're the subjects of his action uh, taking place within us. And also, we don't have time for it today, but I think you write about it in the article that the Eucharistic encounter with Christ is not other than the evangelical zeal for the proclamation of the gospel. Yep. So this is why when um, John Paul II quote the Second Vatican Council that uh, the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith, he's not denying the proclamation of the gospel, because in the Eucharist um, we are proclaiming Christ until he comes again. Amen. And that's why we have that gospel acclamation, which, uh, uh, sorry, I'll round this off. Uh, when we eat this blood and drink this blood, we yep. proclaim his death exactly. until we come. The consumption of the Eucharist is the proclamation yeah. of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Marcus, thanks. We'll do this again. Thank you, Al. <laughs> I'm Al Cresta. Uh, Marcus Peter, who's been uh, on occasion sitting in for me and very happily so. Glad to have him here to work with at Ave Maria Radio.